Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on May 11, 2018. Katie from the Bennett Martin Public Library discusses the top 11 books that were considered as possible 2018 One Book, One Lincoln finalists. Um, so this year we actually have a bonus. We have 11. It's a top 11 list. And the first one we have is Exit West. And this is by Hosin Hamid. And we have two main characters, uh, Saeed and Nadia. And they're young people in an unnamed Middle Eastern country. Um, the government is collapsing um, as it battles uh, religious extremists. And gradually their freedoms are restricted and they begin to look for a way out of the place that they're in to a safer country. So when they're seeking an escape, they find portals that first transport them to um, a Mediterranean island and then another portal that takes them to London. And they're unwanted refugees, so they have to make a new life for themselves. And they're kind of facing dangers and battles with you know, the governments of the two places that they end up in, um, with other refugees, and then ultimately with each other. So let me read you a small section of this. Saeed's father then summoned Nadia into his room and spoke to her about Saeed and said that he was entrusting her with his son's life. And she, whom he called a daughter, must, like a daughter, not fail him. For she called him father, and she must see Saeed through to safety. And he hoped that she uh, would one day marry his son and be called mother by his grandchildren. But this was up to them to decide. And all he asked was that she remain by Saeed's side until Saeed was out of danger. And he asked her to promise this to him. And she said that she would promise only that if Saeed's father came with them. And again, he said that he could not, but they must go. And then he said it softly, like a prayer. And she sat there with him in silence, and the minutes passed. And in the end, she promised. And it was an easy promise to make, because at that time, she had no thoughts of leaving Saeed. But it was also a difficult one to make, because in making it, she felt that she was abandoning the old man. And even if he did have his siblings and his cousins and might now go to live with them or have them come to live with him, they would not protect him as Saeed and Nadia could. And so by making this promise, he demanded. She, in a sense, was killing him. But that was the way of things. For when we migrate, we murder our lives uh, for those who we leave behind. So um, it's I, kind of like a fast-paced journey. It's a little bit of magical realism, science fiction, because these portals just appear, and they jump through them. So it's not, you know, couldn't really happen. But it also centers, it's kind of a character-driven book. It centers on Saeed and Nadia. And they're two people who probably would not necessarily come together in real life had it not been for these circumstances. So that's the first one. The next one we have up is Evicted, and this is a nonfiction book. So um, this is the winner of the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction, and it follows um, the trials of renters and landlords in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The author, uh, Matthew Desmond, is a professor of social science at Harvard, and basically spent a year living in the poorest neighborhoods of Milwaukee. So he profiles eight families he meets that are living kind of on the brink 
where one minor incident can lead to um, financial <coughs> disaster for them. So he's talking about this one woman, her name is Lorraine, and this is kind of a book in classism and racism. He, he follows, um, I guess Milwaukee is a pretty divided city where you still have a lot of African Americans that live on the north end and the um, whites that live kind of on the south side, so he, he kind of straddles both communities. Um, so this woman, Lorraine, is um, living in a trailer park on uh, the south side. So he talks about her being like evicted, because a lot of these people that are, are, they're constantly being evicted. So before she was evicted, Lorraine had $164 left over after paying the rent. She could have put some of that away, shunning cable and Walmart. If Lorraine somehow managed to save over $50 a month, nearly one-third after her, or her after-rent income, by the end of the year she would have $600 to show for it, enough to cover a single month's rent. And that would have uh, come at considerable sacrifice, since she would have to go for, forego things like hot water and clothes. Lorraine could have at least saved um, what she spent on cable. But to an older woman who lived in a trailer park, isolated from the rest of the city, who had no car, and who did not know how to use the internet, who only sometimes had a phone, and who no longer worked, and who sometimes was seized with fibromyalgia attacks and cluster migraines, cable was a valued friend. People like Lorraine lived with so many compound limitations that it was difficult to imagine the amount of good behavior or self-control that would allow them to lift themselves out of poverty. The distance between grinding poverty and even stable poverty could be so vast that those at the bottom had little hope of ever climbing out even if they pinched every penny. So they chose not to. Instead, uh, they tried to survive in color, to season the suffering with pleasure. They would get a little high or have a drink or do a little bit of gambling or acquire a television, and they might buy lobster with, on food stamps. If Lorraine spent her money unwisely, it was not because her benefits left her with so much, but because they left her with so little. She had paid the price for her lobster dinner, she had to eat pantry food the rest of the month, and some days she simply went hungry. But it was worth it. I'm satisfied with what I had, she said, and I'm willing to eat noodles for the rest of the month because of it. So, um, I mean, this is a really searing look at systemic poverty. It's, it's kind of a, you know, a hard book to read. Um, it, it's character-driven in that it focuses on these families and their choices. It, it toggles between the points of view of the slum slum lords who you know make their money by having basically really terrible places for people to live in, and people who are so destitute that that's all they can afford. So for anybody who like pays your bills on time and is careful with your money, it can be a kind of a frustrating read because there's times when you just kind of want to strangle the landlords and you want to strangle the renters. But it, it really I think is an eye-opening book at what is life is like. Um, living when you just have so very little to make it through. Um, and, and also, a lot of these people have absolutely no financial literary skills whatsoever. Um, so it kind of made me grateful that that's not, <laughs> that, you know, I had parents with a stable, with a stable home, and, and, and in a lot of cases they're, they're profiling families with children too, so it's, it's a little bit difficult in that, in that regard. It's a vicious cycle. 
it, you know, it is. And then, you know, with with the the slum slum. I mean, they're basically slum lords. Um, so there's, you know. African American slumlords, and there's also you know white slumlords, and they they obviously make their money off of not not fixing up their properties. You know they're the ones that they only do anything when the cities you know force them to. So it really gives you an understanding of what's happening um, to people whose whose lives are um, are kind of caught in that that cycle of constantly being evicted. We have a we have a way I think of trying to keep people down too. You know instead of helping people up. We, well, we want to keep them down. And they, they kind of profile the, the situation there where you have um, federal or state housing authorities and, and how these landlords have learned to work the system yeah. to get the maximum amount of money out of, you know, with doing the bare minimum they can do to keep the, the properties, you know, there's safe. There's also some that are really good, too. So. Mm -hmm. All right, so our next one up is called Lincoln in the Bardo. And this is by George Saunders. So the the Bardo in t Tibetan Buddhism is a state of existence uh, between death and rebirth, and it varies in length according to a person's conduct in life and uh, the manner and the age that they died. So it's also the place where Willie Lincoln, the son of President Abraham Lincoln finds himself after dying at age 11 of fever. And in the Bardo, he encounters other people that are trapped there as well in this transitional state. And you, the inhabitants of the Bardo don't realize that they're actually dead. So during this night, this is the night after he dies, um, he meets all these characters that are kind of fighting for his soul and what's going to happen to him you know, if he's going to get released from the Bardo. So um, just to kind of let you know, this, this is a kind of a different kind of book. I'll talk a little bit of, of, more about it. But you have um, quite a few characters, you know, and every, every line is kind of um, said by a different, different character. Is it hard to follow the characters? Um, I'll talk about that in a minute, too. You'll just, you can kind of get a feel for what's kind of I'll, – I'll read it the way it's written, and you can kind of get a feel for how this, this book is written. So they're referring to Willie Lincoln here. The lad lay collapsed on the floor of the white stone home, cocooned uh, to the neck in a carapace that appeared fully concreterized. Hans Volman. The putrid smell of wild onions pervaded that vicinity, progressing in its density toward a different, more sinister odor for which there is no name, the Reverend Everly Thomas. He lay gazing up at us, dull-eyed and acquiescent. Roger Bivens III. It was over, the Reverend Everly Thomas. The lad must take his medicine, Hans Volman. We gathered around to say goodbye, Roger Bivens III. Imagine to our surprise then when a woman's voice rang out, offering a parley, suggesting that he would have no objection. He in here is referring to Willie. Um, if we wish to transport the boy back up to the roof so that he might serve out his infinite internment there, the Reverend Everly Thomas. Mind you, none of this is by our choice, said a bass voice with a slight lisp. We are compelled, Roger Bevins III. These voices seem to be emanating from the carapace itself, Hans Woolman, which seemed to comprise of people. People like us, like we had been, 
former people, somehow shrunken and injected into the very fabric of that structure. Thousands of withering tiny bodies, none bigger than a mustard seed, twisting minuscule faces up at us, the Reverend Everly Thomas. Who were they? Who had they been? How had they come to be so compelled? Roger Bevins III. We won't discuss that, said the woman's voice. We will not discuss that. Mistakes were made, said the bass voice. Hans Volman. My advice, said a third, a British voice, uh, do not massacre an entire regiment of your enemy. Never uh, conspire with your lover to dispose of a living baby, said the bass lisper, Roger Bevins III. Rather than murdering your loved one with poison, resolve to endure him, said the woman, Everly, uh, Reverend Everly Thomas. The sexual congress uh, with children is not permitted, said the voice of an old man from Vermont, judging by his accent, Hans Volman. As each spoke, the associated face bloomed up out of the carapace for the briefest instance, bearing upon it a look of agony and aggrievement, the Reverend Everly Thomas. We had seen many strange things here, Roger Bevins III, but this was the strangest yet, Hans Volman. So, you know, it's kind of a, a, a kind of a bleak meditation on death and grief and the lives we lead prior to our death. Um, but it's told in these really short kind of vignettes. And there's um, also little interviews from people who knew the Lincolns and things that were posted in the newspaper of, of the time. So it kind of requires the reader to kind of put everything together. So if you like a nice straight linear plot, this is probably not the book for you. And um, I intentionally read or listened to this as an um, audiobook, and they have some really great actors and actresses that are doing these voices, and I found it very difficult to follow. Um, if you look at, if you have, you know, the visual, you can see where, because some of these chapters are a page, you know, a page, the next one might be two pages. But when you're looking at it, you see these visual breaks. When you're listening to it, you don't. So I think it is a very challenging book to listen to. It's really unusual if you like something that's not your kind of standard, you know, kind of a literary form. I think it's um, a fascinating read. And, you know, the whole idea of all these people that he meets, you know, and, and he's usually with children that they don't stay very long in the Bardo. And for some reason, he's kind of trapped there, and it has something to do with, you know, Lincoln and Lincoln's grief for him. So, I mean, it, it, it's a fascinating book, but it is kind of very unusual um, for, you know, I think what most people are used to. Okay, now we have Little Fires Everywhere, and this is by Celeste, and I believe her last name is pronounced Ng. It's just N-G, but it's pronounced Ng. And so this novel kind of opens in this picture-perfect planned community of Shaker Heights, Ohio, and a house is on fire. And so after the fire is extinguished, the firemen declare that there were little fires everywhere with multiple points of origin, and an accelerant was definitely used. So the question becomes who deliberately set these fires and why, and that's kind of what's examined in the novel. So we're introduced to two families, the Richardsons, who are your typical upper middle class nuclear family, and we have the Warrens that are a working class family composed of a mother and a daughter, and um, they obviously have very different value systems. So you have this tension that the children become friends, and you get this underlying tension of um, 
there's a little bit of racism in there, there's classism, um, and, but there's also the just different beliefs of the parents and uh, those get exposed when these children um, start to connect. So this one is um, talking about Izzy who is the youngest, uh, there's four children in the Richardson family. And so she's the youngest one there and then uh, Mia is the mother of the Warren. So Izzy's newfound fascination with Mia proved lasting. Instead of sequestering herself in her bedroom with a violin, she'd walk a mile and a half to the house on Winslow right after school where Mia would be hard at work. She would watch Mia learning to frame a shot, develop film, and make a print. Pearl, and Pearl is Mia's, um, Mia's daughter, who is a little bit older than Izzy. Pearl, meanwhile, did the exact reverse, walking to the, um, with uh, her friend Moody to his house and lounging in the sunroom with the three oldest Richardson children. Uh, deep down, she was grateful to Izzy for diverting her mother's attention. For so many years, it had been the only the two of them, and now the Richardson's big sofa, uh, on the Richardson's big sofa, she stretched out her legs in luxurious satisfaction. At five o'clock, Izzy would hop into the passenger seat of the rabbit, and Mia would drive them both to the Richardson's, where Izzy would perch on the end of the kitchen counter while Mia would prepare dinner, listening intently to her daughter and the others in the up next room. And only when Mia headed home with Pearl in the passenger seat this time would Izzy join her siblings and slump on the couch beside them. Someone's got a little crush on Mia, Lexi, and Lexi's the daughter. She's um, Izzy's sister. Lexi sing-songed, and Izzy rolled her eyes and went upstairs. Mia had, since starting to work at the Richardson, noted a particular dynamic between Izzy and the rest of her family, especially her mother. Truth be told, her mother was harsher on Izzy, always criticizing her behavior, always less patient with her mistakes and shortcomings. She seemed to hold Izzy to a higher standard than her other children, to demand more from her, and yet at the same time to overlook the successes in favor of her faults. Izzy, Mia noticed, tended to respond by needling her mother even more, pushing her buttons with the expertise only a child could. <laughs> so, um, it's kind of a, it's a very fast-paced novel. Um, it's kind of an exploration of domestic life. Um, you've got these teenagers that are kind of seeking to their own identity and they're kind of fighting against their parents' values. You have this clash of values and it kind of looks at um, like when you should follow a rule and when you're allowed to break them. Okay, now we have The Knicks by Nathan Hill. Samuel is a college professor and he's a struggling writer, and his mother abandoned him uh, when he was very young. So ever since then, he's struggled with self-confidence and issues. He has all these issues. He recently took a large advance on a book, but now he's facing bankruptcy because he hasn't really written anything, and um, his deadlines are approaching. And then all of a sudden, his mother, this estranged mother, becomes um, na a national news sensation, when she is, she's described as a radical hippie prostitute teacher. Is She's videotaped throwing gravel into the eyes of this right-wing governor who's running for the presidency. So uh, he basically has a choice of writing a tell-all book about his mother or having this book contract canceled and then having to repay it when he has no money. 
So he decides to write this tell-all book on his mother, and he kind of has to examine the reasons why, um, why she left him. So um, let me just read this one part to you because it kind of gives you a feel for how this, this book is written. It's very, um, very witty, and um, I think a lot of people found it a, a really kind of funny. It kind of goes off a little bit on tangents, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's, he's talking about it. He's a professor, so in this uh, uh, scene, he's talking to one of his students. So the student says to him, this is so unfair, she said, the way she so effortlessly and fluidly moved her legs is a sign of her youthful flexibility or serious yoga training or both. You asked for an essay on Hamlet, and that is what I gave you. I ask you to write an essay on Hamlet. Well, how was I supposed to know to do that? It's not my fault that you have these weird rules. Well, they're not my rules. Every school has them. Uh, they do not. I used this paper in high school, and I got an A. Well, that's too bad. So I didn't know it was wrong. How was I supposed to know it was wrong? Nobody ever taught me it was wrong. Well, of course you knew it was wrong. You were lying about it. Uh, if you didn't think it was wrong, you wouldn't have lied. But I lie about everything. That's what I do. I can't help it. But uh, you should try to stop that. Well, I can't be punished twice for the same paper. If I was punished, it would be a high, in high school for plagiarism. I just can't be punished for it again now. Is, it isn't like that. Isn't it double jeopardy? Well, I thought you said you got an A in high school. Well, no, I didn't. Well, I'm pretty sure you did. I'm pretty sure you just said that. Well, that was a hypothetical. No, I don't believe it was. Well, I think I would know, duh. Well, you're lying again, and you're lying right now. No. They stare at each other for a moment like two poker players who are both bluffing. This is uh, the most eye contact they've ever shared. In class, Laura almost always stares into her lap where she hides her phone. She thinks if her phone is in her lap, she has effectively concealed it. She has no idea how obvious and transparent this maneuver is. Samuel had, or Samuel has not asked her to stop checking her phone in class, mostly so he can salvage um, her grade at the end of the semester when he doles out a participation point. At any rate, he said, double jeopardy doesn't work that way. The point here is that when you submit your work, the basic assumption is that it's your work, your own. Well, it is mine, she said. No, you bought it. Well, I know, I said, I, I, I own it. It's mine. It's my work. And it strikes him um, that if he doesn't think about this as cheating, but rather than outsourcing, she might have a valid point. <laughs> okay. So here's, here's a little secret. We have a top 11 this year. At 625 pages and 25 hours, this is not going to be 25 hours of audio. This is not going to be one of our top three. <laughs> okay. But it's in the top 11 because so many people who read this absolutely love this book. So um, it's, it's really an intelligent, uh, witty look at two different generations of Americans that are um, coming of age. And it's about, you know, forming connections with people and about relationships. Um, it is um, a really funny 
enjoyable book, but it is very long. <laughs> so if you have a lot of time, I would say pick this up. I mean, you kind of get the feel for how he writes. The whole It's a whole situation of things that are completely absurd. You know, the fact that his mother is this, you know, hippie prostitute. I mean, the, the, the scene where she throws this the gravel in this guy's eyes, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's there he's there vi these viral videos of her i mean it, it's it's there's a lot of really absurd things that happen but um it's it's really well uh, well done it's just really too long for for us and it's what was practical um so the nix kind of refers to that the that little like um character that's kind of like a little human and he kind of runs around and he, he tricks people into loving people that don't love them back, basically. And so that's kind of like the concept of you have this conflict between this mother and, and this son and, you know, why she left him. And So our next one is Paris in the Present Tense. And this is by Mark uh, Halperin. So Jacques Lecour is um, he's about 74 years old. He's a cellist um, and a music teacher and his life is kind of a little bit in flux and a little bit in crisis. Um, his only grandchild has been diagnosed with cancer and he desperately wants to finance a tr medical trip to the United States where he believes his grandson can get the medical care he needs. So he has this chance encounter with a movie producer that leads him to believe that one of his musical um, compositions might be used in a movie. So he spends the money he doesn't have to go first they sent him to Hollywood, and then they have him come to New York. And by the time he's in New York, they decide that they don't really like the music and they're not going to use it. And he's on his own, and he's out basically what was left of his life savings. So he gets a little upset over that. On the plane right back, he decides he's going to plot his revenge against all these things that are happening in his life. And then he also is somebody who falls in love. Every woman he meets, he decides is eligible. He realizes he's in love with her, and that woman is in love with him too. <laughs> so um, one of the characters that he falls in love with is a, a young woman who he teaches, as, as a he gives music lessons to. So this is um, talked about right after he gets back back from New York, and his daughter is Catherine, and his uh, grandson is Luke. So. He could live solely on his pension, semi-impoverished like so many others, and give the rest to Catherine for Luke. But that would only be a fraction of what he needed. He could stay in uh, saint germain en laye which is the housing or the neighborhood, even if not in the Shemansky house. So he kind of rents a, this house from his friend Shemansky, who's also dying. saint germain en May was his home, and Jacqueline, his wife, flowed through it like air. And to leave it would be to break a connection yet unbroken. And when the Shemansky house was sold, Jules would probably end up in a small room above a store with loud neighbors, traffic sounds, no view, and persistent cooking smells. It wasn't supposed to be like that. Jacqueline had deserved to see her grandchild, and yet she had not. She had deserved to live, and yet she had not. She had deserved to go gently, and yet she had not. Luke deserved to have a childhood and not to suffer and die early, and Jules had failed them and to think of nothing except to keep up his health and his strength so that if the opportunity arose, uh, he might seize it. So it's um, kind of a story about, you know, this man kind of coming to terms with the end of his life, and, and he's meeting characters that are kind of 
you know, just starting there, so you've got that conflict right there. Um, it's, it's kind of written in a really beautiful lyrical style. Um, it's got very graceful sentences. Um, it's a really, uh, it's, I would say, deliberately paced. It's not, it's not fast paced, but it's not really slow. Um, and it kind of, he, he reflects on his choices that he's made through life. Um, and so he's trying to live in the present tense when his options are really limited. Okay, the next one up is another nonfiction. And this one is Killers of the Flower Moon by uh, David Gran. Okay, so um, when the, the Osage Nation um, purchased this rocky and unwanted acreage in Oklahoma, um, you know, they'd been pushed out of Kansas. Uh, the tribe added uh, language in the contract that allowed the tribe to control any oil, gas, uh, coal, or mineral rights. So shortly afterwards, because this, this, at the time they purchased it, the land was completely unwanted, and shortly afterwards, oil's discovered, and all of a sudden, um, the Osage become uh, a, a people that uh, were one of the wealthiest per capita in the earliest part of the 20th century. So their wealth attracts a lot of grifters, schemers, suitors, and murderers who are basically itching to take all their money. And then compounding this, the, the government, um, the United States government added uh, um, a law that said basically anybody who had more than 50% blood, um, Osage blood, ha kind of had to have a conserver um, to look over their interests because the assumption was that they couldn't look over their own interest. So then that invited also a lot of people in who basically wanted to take over the money they couldn't sell the rights. The rights had to stay with somebody who had Osage blood, but they could become like a guardian or, you know, um, and, and control how the money was spent. So after that started happening, all of a sudden you have a lot of people that mysteriously start dying early deaths. You know, there's uh, people that are shot, people that are blown up, people that are poisoned. And um, this was kind of called the Osage Reign of Terror. And this is about 1920 is kind of when they kind of officially categorized that time. It says, the official death toll of the Osage Reign of Terror had climbed to at least 24 members of the tribe. And among the victims were two men who had tried to assist the investigation. One, a prominent Osage rancher, plunged down a flight of stairs after being drugged. And another one was gunned down in Oklahoma City on his way to brief state officials about the case. The news of the murders began to spread. In an article titled The Black Curse of the Osage uh, in Literary Digest, a national publication, reported that members of the tribe had been shot in lonely pastures, bored by steel as they sat in their automobiles, poisoned uh, to die slowly, and dynamited as they slept in their homes. The article went on, in the meantime, the curse goes on, and where it, e it ends, no one knows. The world's richest people per capita were becoming the world's most murdered. The press later described the killings as being uh, at, at dark and sordid as any murder story of the century and the bloodiest chapter in American crime history. All efforts to solve the mystery had faltered. Because of the anonymous threats, the Justice of the Peace was forced to stop convening inquests into the latest murders. He was so terrified that merely to discuss the case, he would retreat into his back room and bolt the door. 
The new county sheriff dropped even a pretense of investigating the crimes. I didn't want to get mixed up in it, he later admitted, adding cryptically, there was an undercurrent like a spring at the head of a hollow. Now there was no spring. It's all gone dry, but it has broke way down to the bottom. Of solving the cases, he said, it is a big doings, and the sheriff and a few men couldn't do it. It takes the government to do it. In 1923, after the Smith bombing, the Osage tribe began to urge the federal government to send in investigators who, unlike the sheriff or Davis, had no ties to county or state officials. So this is kind of at the very beginnings of um, the FBI when um, Jagger Hoover is just starting to take over. Um, so it kind of, you have two different storylines. Um, you've got the family of Molly um, Burkhart. So one by one, all of her family members are starting to, to, to be killed off. And she thinks that she's probably going to be next. And then you also have the, the storyline of the beginning of the FBI and having to kind of come in here because the local officials are in on this, which is why nothing's ever getting solved. Um, it's a nonfiction book that reads like a murder mystery. So if you like mysteries, I think this is a really good choice. And um, these two kind of plot lines kind of converge when um, the FBI finally comes in and, um, you know, they start to figure out who, who is behind this. And it's um, kind of really, I would say, dis disturbing when you see how closely connected the people to Molly uh, Burkhart are who are involved in the, in the crime. Okay, now we have Sing, Unburied Sing, and this is by Jasmine Ward. So, 13-year-old Jojo lives in rural Mississippi with his African-American grandparents when his itinerant drug-addicted um, mother, Leonie, comes to collect him and his three-year-old sister, and they're going to drive several hours north to pick up um, their white father, who's being released from Parchman, and Parchman is one of Mississippi's state prisons. So Leone wants to present uh, Michael with this image of this, you know, wonderful, complete family. But for Jojo, this journey is fraught uh, with dangerous encounters. His mother brings a lot of really unscrupulous people into this, um, into this dr uh, drive north. And they also have come across some ghosts. So for his mother, it's the ghost of her dead brother who kind of dies in a hunting accident. And every time she takes drugs, this, this uh, ghost appears. Mm -hmm. And then for Jojo, when he gets to Parchman, where his father is being released, it's a, um, a ghost of a young teenage boy who had served time with his grandfather when his grandfather mm -hmm. was sent to Parchman. You know, his grandfather finished his time. The young boy never does, and you find out kind of what happens to his to his ghost. And that's the unburied people are the ghosts. So Sing Unburied Sing is, you know, talking about the unburied people, the ghosts coming alive. Um, so this is JoJo talking. I try to sleep, but for hours I can't. All I can do is lay there and listen to Kayla breathe. So Kayla's his little sister. Outside, somewhere far away, off in the dark reach of the woods, a dog barks. It's a hacking sound, full of anger and sharp teeth, and at the heart of it, fear. When I was younger, I wanted a puppy, and I asked Pop, and Pop is his grandfather, I asked Pop for one, and he said ever since his time in Parchman, he couldn't keep a dog. He said he tried, but when he got out, 
every one of the dogs uh, he got, mutts and hounds, died within the first year of him getting them. And when he was at Parchman, Pop said, once he had started working with hounds in the prisons used to track escapees, and all he could smell when he was eating or walking or falling asleep was dog shit. All he could hear was dogs yipping and howling and bailing and baying, rearing to tear. Pop said he tried to get Richie, and Richie is one of the ghosts, um, on with the dogs so that he could get him out of the fields, but it didn't work. I closed my eyes and imagined Pop sitting on his high back chair in the corner of the room, Pop with his straight back and his hands like tree roots, telling me stories and speaking to me uh, to sleep. So the point of view here alternates between Jojo and his mother. Um, so it's kind of a really dark, foreboding story about attachment and love and struggle and loss. She's very, Jasmine Ward's a very lyrical writer. So there's a lot of really beautiful passages in here. Um, and so she kind of puts together this um, haunting story of, of a family uh, road trip when you're dealing with a family in crisis. So going from something really dark to... We have the Book of Joy, <laughs> so going 180 degrees here. So this is the Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu with Douglas Abrams. And so um, these two religious leaders spent five days together. Um, I think it was the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday when they got together. And so the central question they tried to tackle was how do we find joy in the face of life's inevitable sufferings? And so they discuss the nature of joy, what it is, obstacles to joy, and what they consider the eight pillars of joy, which are perspective, humility, humor, acceptance, forgiveness, gratitude, compassion, and generosity. And so this is really a dialogue. It kind of sets you up a, a little bit, but it's really a dialogue back and forth between these two gentlemen. So the Dalai Lama says, so now you, Archbishop Tutu, my longtime friend, and he extends his hand to the Archbishop who took it tenderly uh, between both of his, I think you have great potential. Potential, says the Archbishop, responding with feigned outrage, retracting his hand. Great potential, yes. I mean, great potential, you see, to create a happier humanity. The Archbishop threw his head back, laughing, ah, yes. When people just look at your face, the Dalai Lama continued, you are always laughing, always joyful. Um, this is a very positive message. And now the Dalai Lama reached over and took the archbishop's hand again and stroked it. Sometimes when you see political leaders or spiritual leaders, they have a very serious face. And he sat up frowning and looking stern. It makes one hesitant. But when one sees your face, well, it's the big nose, the archbishop suggested. And they both giggled. And so I really appreciate your coming to have this conversation, said the Dalai Lama. In order to develop our mind, we must look at a deeper level. Everyone seeks happiness, joyfulness, but from the outside, from money, from power, from big cars, from big house, most people never pay attention to the ultimate source of a happy life, which is inside, not outside. Even the source of physical health is inside, not outside. So it's, it's kind of a back and forth all the way through this book, uh, these two men just kind of talking. But it, ta you know, it, reach, it, it talks about a lot of really difficult things, too. Um, you know, the, there's you know, a point where um, Desmond Tutu talks about he was on the reconciliation 
committee in South Africa. So he's talking about people that were political prisoners that were tortured. And he talks about, you know, how, how to find joy when you've had some really difficult times in your life. It's just really a very uplifting book and it's written in a really warm-hearted tone and you see the genuine affection that these two people have for each other. So I wouldn't say, um, you know, they have like different, I would say, religious backgrounds. So it's not, I think it's just a really big picture. I mean, religion is definitely in the book, but it's not, you know, it's not Christianity or Buddhism, but it's just, you know, what, um, what it is inside us that brings you know brings us joy. So this is um, this and was a really fun read. And what when they whenever they get together, how they're just drawn to each, each other. And, yeah. And they just pick up. Yeah, they're both pretty old and a little and fragile, other, and, and other things going on in their lives mm -hmm. that it took them a long time just to get together and decide to do this. But they've both experienced a lot of uh, really difficult things in life, and they just talk about you know. So this is really if you want an up uh, uplifting, warm-hearted book, um, you know, part part of this is I think just seeing the interaction between them two. You know, it, it is nonfiction. Okay, now we have Bear Town, and this is by uh, Frederick Backman. Beartown is this uh, small, remote Swedish city, and the residents are always kind of looked down upon by the, the capital as kind of being backwoodsy, backward people. The town's identity is, and its economic survival are kind of wrapped up in its junior hockey team. So this year they have one of the strongest teams they've ever had. It's taken them several years to build up this team. And after a thrilling victory in the semifinal game, um, the town's dreams of the championship are just one win away. So during a party after the semifinal game, there's an incident that happens between the teenage daughter of the general manager and the star hockey player. And then this news kind of forces Beartown's residents to take sides. And uh, the, the town's hopes and dreams are kind of jeopardized when all of a sudden the neighbors um, turn kind of from friends to foe, depending upon which side you're going to choose. So sooner or later, almost every discussion about the way people behave towards one another ends up becoming an ar argument about human nature. That's never been an easy thing for biology teachers to explain. On the one hand, our entire species survived because we stuck together and cooperated. But on the other hand, we developed because the strongest individuals always thrived at the expense of the weak. So we ended up arguing about where the boundaries should be drawn. How selfish are we allowed to be? How much are we obligated to care about each other? People say, well, what about a sinking ship? What about a burning house? Because those are dramatic scenarios to imagine. It's hard to win a debate against that. Because if it were a life and death situation, who would you save if you could only choose one? Who would you pull out of the freezing water first if the lifeboat only had a limited number of places? Your family. You always start with your family. And that's what she's telling herself. So this is the mother of, of the hockey player, the star hockey player. She's freezing. She turned up the heat and is wearing four layers, but she's shaking. She's gone from room to room in the house. And she's cleaned Kevin's room, gotten rid of all the sheets and pillowcases, dumped all the t-shirts and the jeans from the washing basket into charity collection boxes many miles away from home. She's vacuumed up all potential blouse buttons and flush traces of marijuana down the toilet because she's his mom and that's where you start. 
this one is, uh, I think, a really fascinating character study. He has really well-drawn characters of the hockey team players, people in the town. I don't think you need to enjoy hockey to enjoy this book because it, hockey is really a metaphor for sports in general and how you how we you know hero worship our sports heroes i mean you could substitute unl football in there if you want when you're reading this and kind of get the same thing away but it's really what happens when you know you have to you know what's what's moral behavior and what are we going to allow people to get away with and you know where do we draw the lines and then how you know friendships and um just fracture under the pressure of choosing one side or another Okay, and so this is our last one, our 11th one. This is nonfiction as well. This is called Stranger in the Woods, and it's by Michael Finkel, F-I-N-K-E-L. So on a summer night in 1986, Christopher Knight decides to vanish from the world he knew, and he begins to live life as a hermit in the Maine woods. He was raised with a libertarian worldview of self-reliance and he decides he's going to go out and establish his own place, you know, as a hermit. But he is—he actually lives about twenty, less than twenty miles from his actual family. But he never contacts them. So he relies on his own ingenuity, and he builds an elaborate hidden shelter. But the one thing he could not solve was the problem of providing enough food to survive. So instead, he resorts to thievery. So for the next twenty-seven years. He stealthily robbed area summer camps, homes, and vacation cabins without being caught. He becomes this North Pond hermit, and he has this mythical legend uh, among the local people until one day modern technology finally catches up with him. So to commit a thousand break-ins uh, before getting caught, a world-class streak requires precision and patience and daring and luck. It also demands a specific understanding of people. I looked for patterns, Knight said. Everyone has patterns. Knight perched on the edge of the wood and meticulously observed the families of the pond of the North Pond. Quiet breakfasts to dinner parties, visitors to vacancies, cars up and down the road, like some Jane Goodall of the human race. Nothing he saw tempted him to return. He wasn't a voyeur, he insisted. His surveillance was clinical, informational, and mathematical. He did not learn anyone's name. All he sought was to understand migration patterns. When people went shopping, when a cabin was unoccupied, he watched the families move about and knew when he could steal. After that, he said, everything in his life became a matter of timing. The ideal time to steal was deep in the night, midweek, preferably when it was overcast, best in the rain. A heavy downpour was prime. People stayed out of the woods when it was nasty, and night wished to avoid encounters. Still, he did not walk on roads or trails, and just in case, and he never launched a raid on a Friday or Saturday, days he knew had arrived from the obvious surge in lakeside noise. So um, I, I found this just an absolutely, I like nonfiction. I am a nonfiction reader. I found this absolutely fascinating. Um, you've got this idea of what it, what it means to be alone, what it means to be a hermit, um, you know, how much interaction you need with people. But you have this character here who has these really strong, you know, libertarian, I can do it on my own 
type values, and yet he has these morals that constantly change because he has to rationalize his illegal activities to support his life, and in some cases he's, he's even robbing like summer camps for disabled children. Um, so he, it's really, it's fascinating to listen to him say, well, I never stole a brand new Game Boy. I only stole the old one. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know? Um, so it's, it reads like a, a true crime novel. Um, so in addition to interviewing Knight, you, they're interviewing like the local law enforcement people that have been tracking him for 27 years. And they're also interviewing people that have been, been impacted by the crime because when he's caught, there's a, a huge outpour of support for him. I mean, he's kind of like a local hero to these, to these people. And they feel like, you know, he's not, he really shouldn't be spending his, I mean, he, you know, he's obviously a felon, it's felon at the felony point this year of 27 years worth of stealing stuff. And there's people that feel he shouldn't go to, a, you know, a, a prison with dangerous, you know, cr um, violent criminals. And then there are other people that argue, wait a minute, you know, he stole my peace of mind. Like, because what he stole was, I mean, mainly he stole food, but he also stole, like, clothing here and there. He didn't steal anything really big. But, you know, there are people that said, you know, for, for all these years I lived knowing somebody was in my house and I didn't know who it was and I couldn't keep him out and... You know, I, I don't know. I thought it was a really fascinating. Didn't know what movie. he might do next, too. Um, that was that was one of my personal favorites. <laughs> but, uh, so that's our top eleven. Um, please join us at the mill um, for the announcement of the top three. How many books uh, did you review? We had a higher number this year. I think we the amount I think was somewhere around 180 that were nominated, and then we are. Um, Cataloging department goes through and finds, you know, they, they eliminate a lot of them because we have to have them in multiple formats. We have to be able to, um, you know, buy them. Some things are out of print or they're hard to get. We ended up, I think we started with about 65 to 70. So the first meeting we were pretty brutal. If we had looked at a book before, it said we already gave it a chance and, you know, got rid of it. We had to be really kind of ruthless at the, be at the very beginning. <laughs> But um, as, if anybody is ever interested in being on our selection committee, um, it is a lot of reading. I will say that. It's a lot of reading in February and March. Every book I read kept getting eliminated, so the last two weeks I had ten books to read. The previous year before that I only had four, so it really kind of depends. <laughs> when I say read, you know, I can't read. I can't really read 10 books in, in a week, and we don't get paid to read at work time, so I have to read it on my own time. So, you know, you get to the point where you're skimming skimming through a lot of it and and I'll go back and reread the um the top three and I'll take I'll take annotated notes because I, I do book club discussions you know this is like my third third year I think doing this and kind of one of the directives that I was given was that they felt it had gotten too literary and that they wanted to bring it back to more popular reading so that's kind of something that I've kind of tried to stress that we're not we're not picking Lincoln's Pulitzer we're picking books that are going to um, spark discussions that are going to be books that people are interested are really interested in reading you know i i'd gotten comments that they thought books some of the books that had been picked were too dark you know we need to go and i thought last year's was a really good pick the the winner last year i thought was something that appealed to a lot of people so it is hard though but it I mean it really just depends upon who's who's nominating books because that's where it starts if you're not nominating the book it can't be on there and then it depends upon the who's on the committee because we could have we have roughly about 20 people I could have 20 different people and come up with probably mm -hmm. a different set of top 10. Hey Katie, mm -hmm. give you a hand.
thank you. <laughs> we hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcasts by searching for Lincoln City Libraries Podcasts on Facebook.